I think I mentioned when I was here that uh, I had been to India last year. Went there for a camp and um, a place called uh, Pune or Pune as they call it now because I had contacts. I had been there 18 years ago uh, in a discipleship school for a, um, a, few, a few weeks. And uh, I went again last year, spoke at this camp and um, the, the man who did most of the interpreting for me was a professor of chemistry. So he's a very good interpreter. His, uh, his wife uh, was a, um, a school principal. So they were a very uh, capable couple. They had three lovely girls about the age of, of these girls who were over here playing. And uh, there was a, a set of twins and one, one other. And uh, just a couple of weeks ago, well, it was before a couple of weeks ago, um, uh, Sarah, the lady, had a fall and she fractured her back and, uh, and she was basically bedridden for weeks on end. And then we received the news a couple of weeks ago that she had gone to be with the Lord. And uh, we thought, well, what, a, what a dreadful thing that was for that family. Uh, as I think of those uh, three girls who were so bright, so full of life, and now they have lost their mother. And of course, uh, Sushil, the husband, uh, you know, he would have been uh, you know, really beside himself. But thinking on, on this, you know, uh, the, the, the scripture says uh, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and we have a great attachment to um, this life. I have an attachment to this life. I, I'm not putting my hand up to, um, to go anywhere else. But it nevertheless says it is far better to be with the Lord. And, and beyond that, it's going to be even greater to be in the New Jerusalem as, as we have been singing. But uh, are you aware this is not really that popular in the church these days? To be with the Lord is not such a great thing. We want to be here is generally the message that you hear. And certainly, uh, to be with, uh, with what God has, uh, has for us in the future, in the, uh, in the reign of Christ upon earth, in the heavenly Jerusalem coming down, well, that is just not even on the radar. And yet, that is our hope, and that's, that's a, it's going to be a marvellous and amazing thing. So we don't think a lot about that, but we should, because that is our hope. I you want to lean on this. Well, uh, maybe I'm, I'm carrying coals to Newcastle. You know what that means, don't you? Well, Newcastle was where they used to dig up coal, and to take coals to Newcastle is to take coal to a place that doesn't really need it because they've already got it. So I, I, I understand that you're well taught on the word, so why should I be going back and, and talking about the book of Romans? And, uh, but I think of what Peter said uh, when he wrote his letter, that uh, really what I'm doing is stirring up your pure minds by way of remembrance. And uh, often we want to bring something uh, new and exciting, uh, whereas it would be much better to simply stir up the old things and uh, lay again the foundation. That, uh, that God has given us and, and maybe we can do a little bit of that uh, as we look at this. Now I won't be looking at, of course, all of Romans because it's a, it's a very big book, uh, 16 chapters with a lot of detail. But uh, uh, my proposition is that uh, we will have a look tonight at uh, chapter 3 from verse 21 onwards which is really about justification by faith. Then tomorrow I'm going to go back to the first chapter to talk about the, uh, the diagnosis of man's condition. Uh, often we, um, we think that, uh, well, often preaching sort of gives the, the, uh, the prescription for the disease without diagnosing the disease. But the apostle in those early chapters diagnoses the disease and it's good for us to actually go through the diagnosis because then we realise the great need we have of the solution, the gospel. And then... Uh, the third message, uh, I hope to look at uh, the, um, the fifth chapter of, of uh, Romans, the, s the last part, which is about the, um, the federal heads of the human race, which is Adam and then the last Adam, the man from heaven. Then maybe chapter 8, and uh, if we get to the end, maybe chapter 16, which is the last chapter of the book, and I want to particularly look at, uh, at that, but, but really all those practical chapters from 12 through to 16 and uh, see what they have to say. I guess people don't generally preach on the last chapter because it's mainly greetings, salutations, but there is much to be learned there. Well, we're going to have a look at this, uh, at, at the book of Romans overall. 
uh, which uh, I, I would term as basic Christianity. But we tend to think of Romans as being a complex book, very difficult. Well, it does have its challenges, but nevertheless, it is basic Christianity. It is the basis of our faith. And uh, if you look at Paul's letters, the whole of them, uh, starting, th that is, the letters to churches, the first one is Romans. And if you, it, it doesn't matter what copy of Scripture you turn, you turn up to, an old edition or whatever, you will find the same order uh, in Paul's letters to churches, beginning at Romans and going all the way through to 2 Thessalonians, even though he wrote 1 Thessalonians first, yeah. chronologically. But it does not follow doctrinally, if you like. And that is why Romans appears first, because it is the fundamental book. And then along with Romans, you, you've got Corinthians and Galatians, and they all re really speak to the same questions as what Romans does, the fundamentals of our faith. Then you move up to Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and, uh, and, and really you've moved up to another level because you are now looking at the church, the heavenly character of the church in Galatians. And Paul doesn't deal with that in Romans, but he doesn't on those books, those prison letters. And then finally you go to Thessalonians, which is like a third layer, which has to do with the future. 1 Thessalonians, the Lord coming for us. 2 Thessalonians, the day of the Lord. So it is really, what, eschatology you could call it? It's the end times, what happens. So in those nine letters, you have almost a curriculum to study. And interestingly, there are nine letters, but they are to seven churches. So in the sense that you have seven churches in Revelation, uh, you also have seven churches, uh, seven letters or, or letters to the seven churches uh, that Paul wrote. Now, they are the letters to churches. Of course, he wrote letters to individuals, Timothy, Titus, Philemon, but these are the church letters. So, in a sense, we can regard them as a curriculum. And, and I have started at number one, Romans. Augustine, um, you've heard of St. Augustine, a brilliant but immoral man when he was young, he heard a child's voice over a wall speaking to him in uh, Latin and uh, the voice said, Tole lege, which is Latin for take up and read. So he wondered what, what did this mean, take up and read. Now his mother was a Christian. So he went inside to get the book, as he called it. And he got the book and he opened it and it opened to the 13th chapter of, of Romans and it read, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, not in immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And he was a reprobate man in his living. And he was converted on the spot from reading that book, or that passage, just that, that passage from the book of Romans. He later, of course, became a, a, one of the most significant figures in the church and uh, he fought the heresies of a man called Pelagius and, uh, and succeeded. And really, we have inherited the legacy of, of those early battles against heretics. Later, in 1515, Martin Luther, who was teaching the Book of Romans as a professor of theology, but struggling with it, uh, finally came to understand justification by faith the truth dawned upon his mind and of course we know uh, he was converted and uh, became the instrument for the beginning of the Reformation. Later again in 1738, John Wesley. Now John Wesley had met some Moravian brothers on a ship when he went as a missionary to uh, America and back again, a failed missionary, an unconverted clergyman uh, and uh, until he met the Moravians. Uh, they explained to him this truth of justification by faith, but he said, I have never felt it. It was never real to him. And then, May 24, 1738, he was in Aldersgate in London in a meeting and someone read from the preface of Luther's commentary and listening to this, Wesley testified that he was strangely warmed in his heart and he knew that his sins were forgiven even mine, he said. And again, it was from the book of Romans that this happened. Well, uh, let's, uh, let's have a look at, um, see if I'm right here. Oh. 
let me try this. I see people doing these things and I think, oh, that's a, why do people do all these things, you know, um, oh, muck around with computers at the front. Let's see, there we go. Um, sorry, I'm at the wrong end. Let's try up here. All right. Now, that's, a, that's just an outline of the, uh, the early parts of, uh, of Romans, the early section of Romans. Of course, we have an introduction uh, in the first 15 verses, and then we have the text of Romans, which is the, the theme, the gospel. Then we have uh, a section from 118 to 318. Now, that, that adds up to 32 verses, and that is about the universal sinfulness of the human race. He takes a long time doing that. As I said, 30, 32 verses he spends on establishing the lostness of man before he comes to the remedy, which he introduces uh, then from 3.19.20. All are guilty, all are condemned, and the whole world silent before God. Then, from 3.21, he says, But now, a by faith righteousness. So he says in um, 3.18, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first, also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. So it is a gospel, of course, good news. It's, it was, it's a simple term. Uh, it was not a really a religious term. It was just good news. So this is good news he is speaking of. It has universal saving power. So it is this gospel that has this power. It is not speech, wisdom, or earnestness on our part. Uh, it, is, uh, it is Christ crucified, this message. Crucified, buried, raised again. Now he says this is what has the power to change somebody. And the secret of that power is this revelation of God's righteousness. And that, I think, is a very important point, that it is God's righteousness in this gospel that is the secret of its tremendous power. Now, this gospel, of course, uh, was not missing in the Old Testament in this sense, but it was not as clear, it was not as manifest as, as what it is here. The... Um, it accords with the Old Testament scriptures because that's where the term comes from. The just shall live by faith. Concerning Abraham, the just shall live by faith. Abraham was justified because he believed God. So it was not absent in the Old Testament. Everyone who was converted, everyone who was born again, was born again the same way as we are throughout history. Well, it is, uh, it is from faith to faith or it is on the principle of faith to those who have faith. But we note three things about faith. Faith is not, we could call, the procuring cause of our salvation. That is the blood of Christ. Now, there is a tendency to, to put faith in a box by itself, and that is a very secular thing, if you like, because the world does that. If you have faith, well, things can happen for you. If you really believe. If you really believe what? Or if you really, really believe who? Well, no, no who, no what, just if you believe. So faith becomes a disembodied thing that's related to nothing, uh, like a, a transcendental thing that a anyone may exercise. But that is not biblical faith. Uh, that is, uh, um, you know, it is a, a metaphysical technique, if you like. And we're not dealing in metaphysical techniques or self-talk or visualization. These are these techniques or exercises that people suggest if you need something. And I always think that uh, if w when someone propounds a technique, then you've moved away from the scriptural prescription if you've got a technique. It doesn't matter what it is. Secondly, mate, uh, faith is not meritorious work. It is in no sense work. To believe is not to work. So therefore, we are not about the, the, the business of earning credit with God by our faith. We are simply saying God is speaking the truth. I believe he is speaking the truth. Faith is not a faculty innate in man, 
because there is none righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. And his final prescription about man or uh, uh, what he says about man in those chapters about the, uh, the, uh, the indictment upon the human race is that man is foolish, faithless and heartless. So there is no natural innate faith in him that he can dredge up from his own being. It has to come from somewhere else. Well, then we have the 32 verses, uh, the indictment, as I said, finishing with the words, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And if you take the time to read those 32 verses, you really become finally absolutely convinced. There's no fear of God before the eyes of man, which is a terrible state to be in. Uh, I was interested to hear once when someone said, uh, often, you know, the, the uh, Marxist idea is that man is like he is because um, of class warfare or because of the economic uh, benefits for some and not for others. Therefore, man misbeha misbehaves. Or if he doesn't have education, if he doesn't have good housing, if he doesn't have good food, then he's going to misbehave. But as someone pointed out to me one day, the very first sin took place in paradise when things were really great because it came from the heart of man. That was the problem. Something arose there. Now, 3.19. I think we missed a couple here. Let's have a look. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So who does it speak to who are under the law? The Jews. That's who we're talking about speaks to those who are under the law, the Jews. Why? So that every mouth that is Jew and Gentile may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And that is a judicial term. They are under the judgment of God. That is present tense. That is now. For by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the Jews have a double conviction. They are sinners, but also they are transgressors because they had a law. And uh, to sin means to fall short, but to transgress means to cross a line. And in order to transgress, you must have a law. So Adam transgressed because he had a law. Don't eat that fruit. The Jews transgressed because they had the law and they broke it. Well, so the Jew is under the double conviction why? That their mouths may be stopped or, uh, and all the world become guilty before God. Men are always verbalizing. They're always telling either how good they are or how bad someone else is. And the message of the gospel, the conviction that comes, well, through the law, is to stop that. It's to stop their mouths going on about that so that they realize that they are convicted under sin, guilty, and that judgment hangs over their head. Now this is, uh, when it says we are under the, the wrath of God, it means the disposition of God toward the human race is one of wrath. At, at, the, at the very same time, of course, it is one of love, for God so loved the world. So we have two realities, but they're both real. And, uh, and certainly the reality of judgment is, uh, is over every human being because they have sinned and their mouths need to be stopped. Remember the, uh, the Pharisee who prayed and it says he prayed with himself. Strange way to pray. Uh, I'm, I'm very good, look at me. You know, I am not like this publican over here. I do this and this and this but I'm not like him. And this is, uh, this is what people do. Now, you can get the most irreligious uh, person you like, accuse them of something, and suddenly there's a great sense of judicial righteousness about them. You know, I am right. I am not wrong because I did that. This self-justification. There is no such thing as, as a moral vacuum in anybody. It doesn't matter how bad they, they behave or think they behave, there is still this sense of right and wrong and this sense that they fail 
And so they will either justify themselves or they will point at someone else to say how bad they are. You know the typical thing, I don't like Christians because they're all hypocrites, you see. And if they're hypocrites, then I am, that elevates me because I'm not a hypocrite, yeah? (laughs) Well, the voice of the law stops the mouths of men. They are now in the court, silent, guilty, and confined under sin, held accountable to God. Man's first need, of course, is not to be a better person. It is to deal with their guilt. That is the burning need when judgment hangs over your head, when the charge sheet has already been read and you've been pronounced guilty. It's no use saying, I'm going to try and be a better man. Now, you've got to deal with that guilt very quickly. The great turning point we, c- we come to is in 321. Let me have a look here. But now the righteousness of God. Is that that? Uh, that's okay. 321. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. No distinction for all, all sinned and come short of the glory of God and are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. Now, there's three words that uh, I thought we would pick up there. Righteousness, redemption and propitiation. Now, propitiation is, of course, a word that probably 95% of us would not know what it means. Maybe, maybe more than that. It's a, it's, a, it's a difficult word and it's a word that's been ignored as well. Uh, it is, in many translations, they will use another word. Uh, which, which really does not portray what it means. But uh, we'll see how we go. Uh, we, will, uh, we will start with righteousness and then maybe redemption and, and see how our time goes. But let's look at righteousness. Now, apart from law, God's righteousness has been manifested. But now, now when you, when you use that expression, it is in a historic context. If I say, but now then what I'm talking about did not happen last week or last year. It happens now or from now on. So the apostle here is talking about something that is true now, but in the previous period was not true. So it is set in history. And certainly the gospel we preach is a gospel that is inextricably linked with history, with things that happened. The whole of scripture is based upon things that happened, unlike the religions of the world, which are metaphysical systems or philosophies. uh, The Christian faith is a faith that is fixed upon certain things having happened. And if they did not happen, our faith collapses. Now, of course, there are those people, uh, you know, certain atheists who know that very well. And that's why they aim, when they aim to attack, they aim at the history They try and destroy the history because they know when they have done that, they've destroyed everything. There was one bishop who said, uh, well, as far as I'm concerned, the body of Jesus lies somewhere in the sands of Palestine. But that does not affect my faith. But of course, that does affect my faith. And of course, the, the bishop, of course, was a very liberal bishop who probably was not born again anyway. Uh, but you see the point. If he did not die and rise again and is, and is not in heaven now, then all that we hope, our hope is baseless, without foundation. So it is a faith based upon these things having actually happened. So he says, but now. There was a, uh, a man who became a Christian. He became a Christian because he heard one, voice, uh, one, one verse being read. And the verse was Paul writing to Timothy when he said this. 
when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. And he became a Christian. Why? Because suddenly, he said to himself, this is real. These are real things. This is real. This actually happened. And then, he, uh, he projected that to the whole of what, what the gospel said. Well, if this is real, maybe this is all real. And he was born again because of the historic reality that dawned upon his soul. Now, this, uh, this, this phrase, but now the righteousness of God, the order, literally, that it comes in is this, in the original, but now, apart from law, God's righteousness has been manifested. So, in the Greek, of course, you can put whatever you like at the beginning of the sentence because of the, st the way Greek, the Greek language works. In, in English, we, ha we are kind of somewhat bound to our, our, the order of words. But in the Greek, you don't have to do that so much. And so, that's what he does. He puts the important bit first, the bit that he really wants to shaft home to you. And that is, apart from law. That was the most amazing thing to the Jewish ear. We are talking about something apart from law. God's righteousness apart from law? But isn't that righteousness, doing law? But here we have a message apart from law. So this is the, the character. This righteousness is the character of this gospel that is a, apart from law. It is upon a principle other than law-keeping. And again, the Jewish mind automatically thinks law-keeping. That's what it's all about. There is no definite article before law, therefore it says, but now apart from law, not the law. Uh, and when you don't have the definite article, it, it suggests more the principle of law. So it could be the law of Moses or any other law. So whatever law someone wants to impose upon you, then it, it is apart from that. Although the law and the prophets bear witness. So there you have the law and the prophets in the Old Testament. They point to it and say, yeah, that, that, that's correct. This is true. This is truth that you're hearing, even though we're talking about righteousness that is apart from law. So what is new about this? It is the manifestation of this that is new. It was always there. As we said, everyone in the Old Testament was born again by virtue of believing God apart from law-keeping. Every one of them. Even though, of course, they kept law as under the law, but were never justified by that because they could never perfectly keep that law. Well, uh, apart from law, this gospel now becomes front and center apart from law. Well, what is righteousness apart from law? We can identify some things that characterize such righteousness. Number one, this gospel is, does not require change. Change is not necessary for justification. God justifies believing sinners, not believing saints. Now, of course, once a person believes, then there is a life change take place, takes place at that time. But we must separate it in our minds, even though they may happen concurrently, but, but the chronological order of, doctrinally speaking, is justification while you're still a, still a sinner. In other words, you don't have to clean up your act to be born again. God justifies believing sinners. It is the sick who need the physician, not the well. Change follows faith, not the reverse. Neither is this a quality bestowed of which one could be conscious. So, we believe the gospel and we are declared righteous. And righteousness is imputed to us, which means put on our account. But we do not receive a righteousness of which we could be conscious. If that were the case, then we would be self-righteous. And we cannot be self-righteous. We cannot be re regard a personal possession of righteousness. Because the only righteousness we have is His. And we are in Him, and therefore our righteousness is always imputed from our identification with Christ. Roman Catholic doctrine speaks of imparted righteousness, not imputed righteousness. They, they cannot come to this point. 
of understanding that righteousness is imputed to us. They, they always have to have, uh, really what we are talking about is sanctification. So for justification, you must have sanctification in the Catholic view of, of things. Therefore, it is not simply grace. They say, yes, yes, we believe in grace. Yes, we believe in faith. But then there must be works, there must be baptism, there must be uh, the sacraments, penance, uh, indulgences and so on, keeping the commandments. Also, faith and works uh, are not required in, in the sense that we, d we do not um, add works to faith. We are not saved by works and faith. It was uh, Spurgeon who said this. The apostle uh, said over and over again, he, and he tells us that salvation is not by works. Nay, he tells us that it is not by works and grace put together. He testifies that the two principles neutralize and kill each other and that a man must either be saved wholly as a result of God's favour or else he must be saved altogether as a result of his own merit for the two principles cannot in any way be combined. Well, he understood that very well. Number four, saving faith is Godward. Abraham believed God. Becomes a very important point. Of course, we believe in Jesus. Of course, we believe uh, the Word of God. But ultimately, it is God whom we believe. That is what saving faith is, to believe what God has said. Jesus said himself, whoever believes in me, believes in him that sent me. Now, there was a, a famous preacher that um, um, in England in the middle of last century by the name of uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And uh, it was said uh, in, in London at the time he was there at uh, Westminster Chapel, there were two other very well-known preachers, one by the name of Soper, another by the name of Weatherhead, Leslie Weatherhead. They were both very liberal uh, kind of preachers, Methodist, Congregationalists. And it was said at that time that Soper preached love. Weatherhead preached Jesus. But Lloyd-Jones preached God. In other words, he put the focus, we are dealing with God. That's who we're dealing with. When it comes to judgment, we are going to be judged by God. It is him to whom every soul must give answer in that day. And it is believing what he has said whereby God justifies the believer, the believing ungodly. Abraham believed God and it was accounted for righteousness. Also it deals with the past. We often say we believe we're believing for something for the future. But to believe the gospel is to believe something that's already happened. We are believing what has already been done. He has sent his son who has borne your sins. Christ Jesus came into the world, past tense, to save sinners. It is done. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. We are, we are not hanging out for something to happen. It has happened and we believe it. Then, number six, it is for all to believe. There is no distinction. Why is there no distinction? Because all sinned. All may believe because all have sinned. We're all in the same basket, if you like. All in the, in the same package. It is for all of us. Consequently, actually when it says all of sin falls short of the glory of God, it really is all sinned. It is an aorist tense in the Greek, which means it happened in the past at a point and it's finished. It's done. All sinned and consequently are falling short of the glory of God. It is pointing to the sin of Adam. We all sinned in Adam. That was done. That's aorist tense. And that has affected us all. That's why we die. Because Adam sinned, we all die. But we, in turn, are sinning. That is the whole human race. In a present continuous sense. Finally, it is a gift. And this is an interesting word. It's a... Uh, in the Greek, it means for nothing, granted gratuitously, freely, without a cause. 
this word, it is granted to us without a cause, meaning no cause in us. No reason why God should do this for us. The word is used also in John. Jesus said, they hated me without a cause. Same word that they have used here. In Revelation, to the thirsty I will give the water of life without payment. It's the word without a cause. We may drink the water of life without a cause in us. There is no religious mentality or character in us that makes us acceptable. There is no cause in us why God should be gracious to us. There was a guy uh, in the little church we had. His wife um, was a believer and she came to us more or less the next Sunday after she had become a Christian. She was a nurse and... Uh, but her husband was not a Christian. And immediately she started to pray and fast for her husband. She was very keen that he become a, a believer and, uh, and he wasn't becoming a believer. Uh, until one day, as he put it to me, he said, I was mowing the lawn. When I started to mow the lawn, I was not a Christian. When I finished mowing the lawn, I was. <laughs> so without a cause... He was born again. So there you go. That's, it's called mowing evangelism. <laughs> then the word redemption. And we'll, uh, I think we'll leave on, uh, finish on this point. The word redemption. Uh, we are justified through the redemption. Where are we? That is in Christ Jesus. This, of course, you know, to redeem something is to buy it back by the, with the payment of a price. Leviticus, we have the law saying this. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside you becomes poor and sells himself to a stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him or a close relative from his clan, may redeem him. Or he may, if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. Now this was the law in Israel. Uh, and of course, there were many things re uh, redeemed. You know, the firstborn son was redeemed by the slaying of an animal. Otherwise, the life should be sacrificed. But here, we have someone who's fallen upon hard times. And, uh, and so, um, a close relative may buy back what they have lost. Now if you go to the book of Ruth, we have a, an example where uh, you had Naomi and her husband Elimelech. Now you, you may remember that they lived in Bethlehem and uh, there was a famine. So uh, Elimelech, her, um, his, his, his wife uh, Naomi uh, and their sons, uh, Marlon and Chilion, they went to Moab. Now that was the one thing they should not have done. That was to go to a foreign land and it was forbidden. But nevertheless, in disobedience, they went out. In the process of time, the two, the two sons married. Uh, there was Marlon, he married Ruth, and there was Chilion, and he married uh, the, uh, another Moabite girl uh, by the name of Orpah. And um, as time went on, Elimelech died. So Naomi lost her husband. Then Marlon died, and Chilion died. So finally, you had uh, Naomi... Uh, by herself with two daughters-in-law who were both Moab, Moabites. Uh, and uh, she decided that now she had heard that uh, there was bread in Israel that she would return. She'd go back home. She said to her two daughters, uh, look, I'm, I'm going to go back to my people. Uh, I think it is best for you if you re return to your homes, return to your mother's house and you find yourself husbands. And they said, no, 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 no. We, we will stay with you. Uh, we love you. We are going to keep with you. And, uh, and she remonstrated and said, well, no, it's, it's no use. I mean, if, if I was to, to have sons, would you wait for them to marry them so you could have husbands? And this is very unlikely. No, go back to your home. Go back to your own people. And finally, Orpah said, yes, I will. And she kissed her mother-in-law goodbye and she went. But then Naomi, um, Ruth said, no, I will not. And she made one of the most beautiful speeches in the first chapter uh, w of all literature, not just the scripture. 
of uh, you know how how I will will not turn back. I will stay with you. Uh, your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. Your um, where you die, there will I be buried, and so on. And I'm staying. So both of them went back to Bethlehem. They arrived in Bethlehem and caused quite a stir. This is this is Naomi. She is back. And uh, Naomi said, don't call me Naomi anymore, which means pleasant. Call me Mara because I am now bitter. Bitterness has befallen me. Well, um, Ruth uh, was, a, was a fine girl and she was going to help her mother-in-law. And uh, Ruth uh, set about to glean in the fields. Now, you know the law of Moses uh, had provision for the poor and the uh, sojourner in the land to be able to go out into the field during harvest and pick up the grain that had fallen from the harvesters as they, or the reapers as they went through. And the law also said, uh, when you reap your fields, you must not reap right to the edge. You must leave something for the poor and for the sojourner. So that was to be left and what fell must also be left. Very unlike the value-adding mentality of business today. You know, you get as much as you can from everything. But the law said, no, you don't do that. You leave some. So this is what uh, she did. She went out and she gleaned, following behind the reapers. She happened upon the field of Boaz, not knowing who Boaz was, and uh, there she gleaned. She came back to her mother-in-law, and uh, her mother-in-law was uh, surprised that she came back with so much. And she said, where have you been today? Well, I've been on the field of Boaz. So well, that's good that, that you're there because he is a relative of ours. Boaz took notice of her and said to um, you know, the young men, who is this? And they said, well, this is, uh, this is Ruth, the Moabitess, who came back with Naomi. And so he instructed them, you uh, look after her, let her drink if she's thirsty, uh, make sure the reapers do not trouble her, and also I want you to drop handfuls on purpose. Let some grain purposely fall for her to pick up. So there you see uh, grace at the outset toward Ruth. And yet Ruth is not a picture of a saved person at this point. And yet there is grace being extended to her. And uh, as time went on, uh, Naomi said, I must do something for you. Y you need rest. Uh, you need a future. And... Uh, well, I want you to do this. And she gave her instructions because this man was a near relative of ours, which means kinsman. Uh, a kinsman, and he also was a kinsman redeemer, which was a position in Israel. If you're a kinsman re redeemer, it means that you are closely related to someone and also you are fairly well off, that you are able to redeem what they have lost. In other words, you're a rich man. You had money. It's one thing to be a kinsman, but it's another thing to be a kinsman redeemer. You have to be both related and able to do the job. Well, um, Naomi says, I want you to go tonight uh, while, the, uh, while the threshing is going on on the threshing floor. And uh, I want you to note where Boaz lies down to sleep. After he has finished eating and drinking, um, then I want you to see where he goes. And as it happened, she saw that. He went and he went to lie down the other side of a heap of grain uh, to sleep for the night because they would sleep on the job. And uh, so she, um, following the instructions of Naomi, went up, uncovered his feet and lay down at his feet and put the cover that was on him partly over her. Now this, is w this was not as uh, probably a Western eyes would look at it and say, well, this is just a, you know, this girl trying to trying to um, have it on with this guy or something. No, this, was, this, was, this had a tradition behind it. This was a message uh, that you are a kinsman redeemer. And I want you to do something for, for our family. And who it was for was for Elimelech, um, Marlon and Chilion because they were the ones who were the relatives of Boaz. And uh, what was required was uh, the responsibility was to buy back what had been lost so that it was not lost to the family and that the name of the dead would continue. Well, uh, in the middle of the night, he wakes up and he sees there's a woman at his feet. And uh, he was surprised, understandably. And he says, well, who are you? He says, I'm your servant, 
root. And uh, please put your garment over me or let your wings cover me. And wings there just simply means the corners of your garment. The cover, put it over me. That was the request to redeem my inheritance. And, uh, and he said, lay down until the morning and I will attend to it. I will make sure this happens. There is one redeemer closer than me, but uh, if he does not redeem you, I will. Meaning he, that he will redeem your inheritance or the inheritance of your family. So she lay down until the morning, then she rose before one could recognize another and he, he heaped even more grain upon her to take home to Naomi, which she did. Well, um, that, uh, that day, you know, uh, Ruth goes back to her mother, uh, her mother-in-law, and it relates all that took place. And Naomi says, he will not rest till he has settled this matter today. And that day, Boaz goes down to the gate of the city, Bethlehem, where the elders meet, where business transactions take, take place. And he waits by the gate until he sees the near redeemer come. And he says to him, uh, step aside, friend, and sit down here. And then he calls ten men as witnesses. Step aside, you ten, and sit down here. Then he explains what has happened. Our sister Naomi has come back and uh, uh, all that belongs to her, she, wants to, she needs to sell this field to redeem her inheritance. Uh, uh, will you, the near kinsman, will you buy back or redeem what has been lost? And he says, I will. Then he then says, Boaz, and when you have redeemed uh, this inheritance, you must acquire, you also acquire Ruth the Moabites to raise up seed to the dead that the name of the dead does not disappear out of Israel. Now, of course, it was also law. If a woman marries and is widowed without children, then the next brother must marry that woman and the first child to be born would belong to the deceased brother and would, and would inherit what the deceased brother inherited. It would not be the father's child, the actual father's child. It would be the brother's child. And that, that was what he was saying here. He was saying you need to raise up seed to the dead, that the name of the dead does not disappear out of Israel. And as soon as he said that, the near kinsman said, I cannot do it. I cannot redeem it. And in fact, he said that twice. I cannot do it. I cannot do it. So who is the near kinsman? Who is the one more closely related to us than our heavenly Boaz? No, Jesus is our Boaz. Jesus is our heavenly Boaz. But this is a near, a nearer kinsman. Who is he? The law. Because it says here the law was weak through the flesh. Couldn't do it. Wanted to. Yes, keep these commandments and you shall live. But it couldn't. It was weak through our flesh. What does he say? But now, apart from law. Now, apart from the near kinsman. God's righteousness has been manifest. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, praise God. So, the near kinsman could not do it. He was an unsympathetic individual. He didn't seem to have any, any feeling for the situation. First of all, he said, I'll do it. Then he said, I cannot do it, and I cannot do it. And then he was gone. And it was left then to Boaz to redeem what was lost. Praise God. Let me just uh, finally say something about the law. You know, the law uh, is um, often, you know, the, uh, the Seventh-day Adventists say you must keep the Sabbath. Um, other groups propose the law as the way to life and righteousness. 
There is one view of the law says, uh, one view that is often put to us is that Christ kept the law and observed its commandments perfectly and that the merits of, the, of, law, of his law keeping have been credited to us as righteousness. Is that possible? Did Christ keep the law and then that perf perfect law keeping become ours? If that was the case, then we are not dead to the law. If that is the case, law is still master in the field. But we have died to the law. <coughs> Romans chapter 7. If a man is married and, uh, and then he dies, his wife is free from the law of her husband and can marry again. We were married to the law, but we died. The law didn't die, we did. We're free from it. To be married to another so that we may produce fruit unto God. It was a fruitless relationship with the law, absolutely fruitless, but this new relationship produces fruit unto God. The reformers had, uh, while they grasped justification by faith so well, they had this bad habit of putting people back under the law as some sort of a, uh, a guide. Quoting from one uh, reform document, it said this, it talks about the third function of the law. The first function of the law was to reveal sin. That's true. The second function of the law was concerning civil law. That's, that's useful. British law is largely built upon Mosaic law. But the third use of the law is this. As a guide to the regenerate into the good works that God has planned for them. The law tells God's children what will please their Heavenly Father. It is like a family code. It is like a rule of life. How can that be? If I've died to the law, how can it be my rule of life? It can't be. Not at all. I close with, uh, with what Paul said to um, the Galatians. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision. Meaning, to be a law keeper doesn't count. To be a, a non-keeper of the law doesn't count either. As for all... Um, what does count is a new creation. And for all those who walk by this rule, peace be on them and upon the Israel of God. What rule? The rule of a new creation. That is life. We live by this life, this newly created life. That's what the Christian lives by. Not by the old letter, which has been a poor husband and to which we have died. Lord bless you. Thanks, bro. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.